Welcome back to uh, Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here with a very special uh, edition where we're uh, lucky enough once again to have Rohit Bargava uh, as a guest. Rohit is the author and founder of The Non-Obvious Company, uh, which is uh, uh, a really must-read book each year where Rohit outlines the non-obvious trends that uh, all of us need to be tracking in the coming year. So uh, we've had Rohit on the show, uh, I guess, uh, three times already and uh, always, uh, always thought-provoking, always uh, insightful. Rohit, uh, thanks once again for joining us. You're welcome. I think uh, I'm in the uh, the three or four timer club, right? That's uh, that's some hallowed ground right there. That is. We've talked about establishing a punch card system, uh, and uh, you know you're almost to the point where you will win a free lunch. So uh, so if you uh, if you if you play your cards right. So uh, so thanks again for joining. Um, as we uh, as we were talking a little bit in the in the warm up uh, off off uh, audio. Um, I think folks who listen to this show uh, really would benefit from tracking Rohit and uh, reading his his uh, his non-obvious guides. Uh, also, I, you know, I know Rohit, you're launching another series of of guidebooks, which we'll talk about in a bit. But um, can you can you describe a little bit about uh, what the non-obvious company is and and how it got started? Yeah, the the non-obvious company is really um, on a mission to try and help. Uh, organizations and people to see what others don't see, to see what others miss. And the way we try and do that is by teaching people how to be better consumers of information. And by better consumers, I mean uh, honing their skills to weed out what's irrelevant, um, but also to be more open-minded, to find information from different places, to be more curious, to ask questions, and then to start to do what we call intersection thinking just put those pieces together to start to see not only what's happening in the world today, what's happening in our culture, but what are the trends that indicate what's going to happen in the future? And then how do you use that knowledge to either uh, improve what you're doing in your company, improve what you're doing in your role, or to power your own career? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's a lot to draw from there and a lot of uh, sort of uh, nice convergence with what we try to focus on on this show in that, um, it does feel like you, you uh, at, at your sort of foundation, you're, you're, you're really about education and teaching people um, how, to, how to sort of grow and get better. You know, like, so I, I think, you know, rather than thinking about this non-obvious mindset as something that's born, um, you know, I get the sense, you know, through all my interactions with you that uh, you believe a lot of this is, is teachable and uh, learnable. And then a lot of what you provide in your guidebooks and in your keynotes and in uh, you know, pretty much everything I've seen from you is, is very practical tips. So like, it's not just, you know, um, brainstorming and ideating in the abstract, you sort of, you outline a trend and then you say, here's what it means to you. And here's how you can actually take action against it. Yeah, I'm very, uh, I think that uh, this, this idea and theme of non-obvious uh, is really something that, that I and, and my entire team takes to heart uh, because what it means to us is we're not telling you these vague abstract things that you always hear um, without an actionable way to do it. We're not telling you these obvious platitudes that, that exist out there. We're giving you real do this right now in order to uh, achieve this, right? And I think that 
we need more of that in the world. There's too much quantified bullshit, right? There's too much like stuff that just exists in order for us to maybe feel good about how many impressions we have of something or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever they are. Right. And my, my example of that partial example of that was getting my 23 and me genetic analysis and looking through the results. And one of the lead results in there that I got was that I was I don't know, like 63% more likely than others to be inclined to dislike people who make chewing sounds when they eat. I'm like, how is this useful for me in any way, right? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Um, and that's kind of what exists out there, right? And so your point of like me being very much about learning and education, totally true. Because I think a lot of times when you hear people who describe themselves as futurists, um, the, the unwritten message behind that term futurist is I'm the smart guy or the smart girl and you pay me and I'll tell you what the future is going to be. And that's not my philosophy. I think that, that if we can teach people how to put these pieces together to intersect them, uh, they can start to see the patterns for themselves. And so that's what I'm all about, trying to teach people how to do that. Yeah, it definitely, uh, it definitely comes through. And also, uh, just as a side note, I'm glad I'm not snacking uh, during this podcast because uh, apparently there's a 63% likelihood that that would, uh, that would create uh, some, some, some dissent between you and I. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's kind of become a self-unfulfilling prophecy because now I'm like, oh, man, maybe I should be a little more open-minded about that, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but just to get into uh, some of the, the some of the particulars uh, around uh, maybe your 2019 uh, trend book uh, to begin with. Um, first off, for those who uh, who haven't really uh, read through Rohit's books, it's kind of a nice uh, split between uh, some sort of framing in the front around uh, you know just like we were talking about how do you learn how to become more observant, how to notice the, uh, I think a term you use is the accelerating present uh, as a way to identify um, trends, also a way to, uh, ways to discern between trends and fads. Yep. Um, all of that, you know, we've talked about uh, uh, on previous shows and, uh, you know, honestly, it has been, um, you know, really an influence to our approach uh, around uh, trying to identify learning and educational trends uh, and to, to kind of see, see where things are heading. Uh, so I would definitely recommend that part. Um, but then for those of us who've read the books, uh, you know, uh, each year, uh, we do love to get to the, the 15 trends that you are uh, predicting will, uh, will really, you know, see light of day, see uh, adoption and uptake in uh, 2019. Uh, and you've sort of broken it down into five categories, three trends each. Um, are there any that jump to mind from your perspective? You know, you outline, uh, you know, 15 of them. Are there any of them that are, you, you think are specifically relevant to an audience who's listening to a show called Trending in Education? <laughs> yeah, I mean, hopefully, otherwise it'd be a short conversation for us, right? Um, yeah, one of them that I, that I think has been really interesting is something that I've been tracking for years. Um, and it kind of goes to the heart of what I think some, a lot of people have a question when, about when it comes to trends, which is I publish this book called Non-Obvious uh, every year with an annual update. And what's fascinating about that is I'm literally saying on the cover, these are the 2019 trends. And when I do that, um, what ends up happening is people say, well, what about the 2018 trends? What happened to those? What about the 2017 trends? And I've been doing this for nine years now. 
Um, and so uh, the thing that happens with some of these older trends is they don't just, they don't go away. Um, if they're well predicted, they actually perhaps become more obvious than non-obvious, but um, they continue. And so one of the trends that I've been tracking for a long time that I think specifically relates to education was something that at one point I had called strategic downgrading. And in this latest version, I actually changed the name to deliberate downgrading. Uh, but deliberate downgrading is all about this idea that in a world where we have digital versions of so many things, um, sometimes we prefer the old version. Sometimes we go back to the vinyl records. You know, sometimes we go back to the printed book. Um, and there was a fascinating story as I was doing the research around this um, that I think really brought it to life of uh, farmers uh, getting the latest John Deere tractor and when they got this latest tractor, it had all this amazing weather data and GPS tracking information and all this stuff that could totally help them um, to understand how best to take care of their, of their crops. Um, unfortunately, it has so much software that at some point it's going to be, break down um, as what happens with software. And the problem is that they can't fix it themselves now. They have to wait for the engineer uh, to come and they lose several days of productivity because of that. And a lot of these farmers are looking at that and saying, look, I can't fix this myself and I can't afford the lost productivity. So I'm returning the new GPS enabled tractor and I'm getting the old one because at least I have the parts and I can fix it myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that mentality is something that we're all kind of making our own life hacks around, particularly when it comes to education, right? Like we have all these new ways to digitize our learning and to make, you know, we have speed reading apps and we have like all this stuff. Um, and sometimes we're just going back to like the old way that we know, because we know that works. Mm -hmm. And, um, just to kind of build on that, uh, is, does that imply a bit of a, a move away from, uh, from digital learning and more of like seeking out, uh, face-to-face -face instruction? Uh, you know, one of the things we've talked about, uh, several times on the show, it's one of our uh, March Madness uh, topics is uh, the notion of screenlessness. So like the idea that uh, for quite some time, there was an emphasis on, uh, you know, now everyone has a, an iPhone. What if we added iPhones to all of our classrooms and now we could have digitally empowered uh, classroom experiences? That was maybe the obvious trend and that's still in some ways the obvious trend. But increasingly, we've been tracking uh, the movement uh, against screens, uh, which interestingly seems to be tied to socioeconomic status as well, uh, almost an inversion of that where, um, you know, uh, children of affluence, uh, you know, particularly children in the valley, uh, you know, the, the children of folks who are running a lot of the major tech firms out there. Uh, increasingly their parents are raising them uh, really off of screens and curbing digital engagement. Um, that's something that we've, we've covered in uh, a few different forms, uh, but that sounds consistent with sort of the deliberate downgrading and what was surprising about it, or maybe what was not obvious about it, uh, for me at least, was that uh, frequently in order to downgrade, uh, lots of time that is tied to your socioeconomic status. So like for it to be intentional um, to mm -hmm. kind of curb your, uh, your use of an iPhone or curb your, uh, your connection to sort of digital stuff, uh, even that mindset uh, frequently is tied to sort of uh, 
your access to um, to a lot of the information that maybe uh, would draw some can so maybe throw up some red flags about uh, why digital is is dangerous. Is that is that a theme that you're also picking up on and that maybe permeates? Yeah, it's um, uh, it really is. I mean, there was a there was a recent. You probably saw the same article I did. There was a recent New York Times article all mm -hmm. about how um, human contact is becoming a luxury good. Yeah. Um, in the sense that people are paying extra if they have extra to pay in order to get the human version of something. And it's fascinating because there was a trend actually last year that we called the human mode. And the human mode was kind of like the, uh, the setting that you could put on to something that would be more human. And there was this beautiful example of a uh, UK based uh, grocery chain, um, Tesco, that created a slow checkout line. Um, and their slow checkout line was for uh, older people who had dementia, people who might need longer time to pay. And it was the perfect uh, sort of opposite to the pay yourself self checkout that we see happening in so many different retail environments and mm -hmm. an acknowledgement that for some people, that's not the optimal solution. Some people actually need more time. Some people need more human contact and, and we don't want to remove that. And in some cases we want to bring it back. And I think the question we're dealing with now is who's going to afford it, which is the point that you raised, right? Mm -hmm. Is it just the people who can uh, pay for it? Or, I mean, if you look at other cultures, for example, I mean, one of the fascinating things when I went to visit uh, one of my relatives in India was um, how many times her doorbell rang uh, with somebody coming by saying, hey, you want to buy these vegetables? Do you have any shoes that need to get fixed? I'm dropping off your you know, laundry. Like, because the thing that's cheapest in some of these um, some of these countries is human labor because mm -hmm. there's so many people. Right. And so it's actually cheaper for someone to come to your house to fix your shoes than it is to go off and just throw your shoes away and buy new ones, which is mm -hmm. what many people would do over here. Right. And so I think that this idea of human contact and bringing it back and whether it's going to be a luxury item or uh, whether it's just an alternative for people uh, is a fascinating space. And I think it definitely relates to learning in terms mm -hmm. of you know, how do we actually consume information? What do we need someone physically there to be teaching us versus something that we can learn in a virtual way? Right. And even those virtual modes, um, how intimate and human are they? You know, there's a, there's a great example of uh, what Fender has been doing with their play platform around teaching people how to play guitar. Um, and it's beautiful. I mean, they have these beautiful 4K, uh, high-quality shot videos where you can see exactly what the fingerings are for the guitar. And they're trying to solve one of the biggest problems that they have in that industry, which is everybody wants to play the guitar, and almost everybody gives up instantly because they don't get good fast enough. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the faster they can get somebody to play their favorite song, uh, the more likely they are to stick with the guitar and therefore buy a better guitar, buy amps, buy all this stuff that they sell. Right. Right. And that's a trend also that I know you, uh, you've been tracking for some time, too, is how, uh, how enterprises do their marketing. And uh, in many ways, seems like there's a, there's a movement there for brands to uh, present in a more authentic human way uh, and it, in some ways modeling themselves more after uh, like folks who influencers who emerged out of YouTube or, uh, you know, trends that sort of uh, maybe emerged in the sort of the new economy, the new media sort of movements that are happening. Uh, and, it, you know, increasingly brands who even uh, B2B brands, which is something that I thought was an interesting uh, 
uh, idea that you were talking about as well, how increasingly they are looking to market themselves and um, sort of identify as, uh, you know, mission oriented, authentic, uh, you know, even the retro theme is something you talk about. Um, any advice or any, any sort of any stuff thematically, any stories from, uh, from the non-obvious guide that come to mind around, uh, you know, recommendations for brands who are looking to, um, to sort of engage uh, in, in the, the sort of rapidly changing world that we're living in? Uh, I think that uh, one trend that I, that I know we talked about um, last year was uh, light speed learning. Mm-hmm. And it was all about how we expect to learn things faster. Uh, and one of the stories I told was of a eight-year-old who went on YouTube and taught himself how to drive, mm-hmm. which is terrifying for me as a dad of two boys. But, <laughs> you know, um, that was the world that we're, that we're kind of living in. And that kid at eight years old did that. And now 10 years later, he's going to have that question of college. Right. And, uh, you know, and he's going to have grown up saying, well, I taught myself how to drive in five minutes on YouTube. So do I really need to go to school for four years? Right. Um, and what is that value going to be for me? And I think we're starting to see some of those questions already. And so um, to me, like if you're a brand that's thinking about, well, how do I use this um, or how do I cater to this? One of the biggest things that I'm seeing is the method that we're learning, uh, that we're using for learning uh, is very much using uh, practical examples and visual guides mm-hmm. um, and is centered on a uh, opinion. And so, you know, this is dangerous and beneficial, right? The, the dangerous part is we turn to one person's version of doing something and we learn that way. It's kind of like if you watch a YouTube video and teach yourself how to tie a tie, you only learn that one way to tie mm-hmm. a tie. That's it. Um, and to you, that's tying a tie because it works and, you know, your tie is on. Uh, but when we teach people in that way, they don't realize there could possibly be another way. Mm-hmm. And traditional education, uh, when I say traditional, I mean the way that we've typically taught people is, well, there's this way and there's this way. And these are the different formats and these are the pros and cons and it's been more complete. And I think the danger is as we start to get more visual with some of these things, people only learn that one way and that's all they think they're that exists. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. our challenge is like to augment that, right? To give people those multiple ways. And so I've been thinking a lot about this when it comes to how people learn really practical skills. And I know you mentioned like the guidebooks, right? That we've been pioneering. And yep. a lot of the, the philosophy behind that has been that many of the guidebooks, particularly when it comes to business topics out there, are written like dictionaries. You know, the dummies guides or the idiots guides are basically like a dictionary. Um, and so you could look up something and it's useful in the same way that a dictionary is, but it doesn't really tell you how to do this stuff in a practical, easy to digest way. Totally. Yeah. And, um, and I guess that's something that your, you know, your books are, are more digestible and practical. Um, and then uh, also, I guess, diverse in a way, right? So like you're, you know, you typically are looking across uh, industries to actually identify trends and you know, for each of the 15 trends that you outlined, and I want to, I want to kind of lightning round them uh, in a second. Um, you know, they, they include stories that, you know, each, each one includes, uh, say, like three or four different stories. Uh, you know, storytelling at a, at a macro level is, is, is very clearly a trend that is uh, increasingly relevant. But, uh, but the idea of, you know, 
trying to pull in diverse perspectives uh, is something that uh, I know you're passionate about. It's something we do talk about uh, frequently on this show. And uh, that sort of uh, maybe is a way to counter some of what you're describing where like, you know, encouraging folks to sort of uh, be more omnivorous in their sources and, uh, you know, force themselves to, to sort of consume from, uh, from surprising sources uh, just to kind of continue to play with your head up and see what might be emerging. I am, uh, I'm already picturing in my head the t-shirt for Be Omnivorous. That's a great <laughs> tagline for, uh, for this philosophy. Yes, for sure. And, uh, and maybe just jumping into some of, the, some of the themes quickly as we continue to move on in, in the show. Uh, one that I really was struck by was strategic spectacle. Uh, I think that's the first one that you outline. And um, uh, I'd love to hear your sort of bite-sized summary of what you mean by strategic uh, spectacle. But the you know case in point, uh, you know we're we're here based out of New York, and uh, over by Hudson Yards, the new um, uh, you know major development site that's been uh, built up over by the the top of the High Line. There's a new um, uh, building that was built, uh, kind of a stairway to nowhere called the Vessel, that was really just designed. Uh, for Instagram. Uh, and it's, it's a very large, you know, it's probably about 20, 25 stories of stairs that, uh, that create uh, surprising and interesting photo angles. And uh, interestingly, also the, the vessel, uh, I believe there's, uh, they own the rights to any of the media that is produced on their premises, if you accept their, uh, their uh, terms and conditions. Um, I just thought that was an interesting one. Um, can you describe a uh, uh, strategic spectacle? Because I feel like the vessel is a great example of that. Yeah, so the interesting thing about strategic spectacle, I think, is that we do see lots of examples like the one that you mentioned, or like the Museum of Ice Cream, or many of those sorts of uh, creations that are meant to create spectacle. But companies and organizations are seeing that and thinking, well, I need to do something with that myself in order to be able to uh, have that spectacle and attract attention. So you're really seeing a lot of application of this when it comes to retail, for example. So more and more you have companies like uh, Samsung, for example, creating their uh, store uh, that is just for showcasing their product. So it's not even to sell, it's like a showcase room. And they're trying to show their products in such a way that people look at that and they say, oh, this is really, this is really cool. Now I need to go online and buy this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like another uh, thing that I've seen in the last couple of years is the notion of O, O to O. So uh, I think it's online to offline uh, as like uh, something I've, somebody coined that, uh, that I've seen recently, which, it, which is sort of consistent with that, where like, uh, you know, companies that began with purely uh, online presences are now uh, opening up storefronts. So like, you know, Amazon has stores, uh, you know, uh, Warby Parker also I think has now uh, some some storefronts, but uh, but all of that thematically, you know, it, it's not necessarily deliberate downgrading, but it but it's sort of consistent with that theme too, where like you know, digital is not a panacea. Like it's not the only way in which folks will want to uh, engage and consume, and increasingly, folks are seeking out uh, you know, human connection, uh, physical experiences, uh, and. Uh, you know, in some ways that trend, uh, I imagine, is, is probably going to continue. And it's something that uh, those of us thinking about learning and education are going to need to grapple with. 
yeah, I think uh, I think that's right. I mean, um, the more we the more we start thinking about that, uh, you know, part of the challenge and part of what I do with all of these trends is try and create this spark that then leads to considering, okay, if we were to use this trend, if we were to use this idea in some way, what could we do um, to change either what we're doing right now or to perhaps pivot in a different direction? Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple other themes that I definitely wanted to hit on, uh, muddled masculinity uh, as a uh, a father of a son, uh, myself, uh, you know, Matthew is now three months old. Yes. Congratulations. I know that's, uh, that's great. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, uh, and then also as, uh, as, uh, someone who wrote his undergraduate thesis on, uh, masculinity and intimacy, uh, conflicting cultural prescriptions. Um, this one certainly, uh, spoke to me and, uh, you know, you've had a lot of gender-related uh, themes uh, I have, yeah, I have. over the so, last few years. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so in 2017, um, I had a trend that I called Fierce Femininity. Um, and it was all about how women were reimagining their role by taking power um, back in many cases. And you were seeing this in media. So think about kind of the Hunger Games as an example of like this strong female protagonist that's basically kicking everybody's butt and sometimes letting the guys die. Um, this is not a princess in a tower anymore. Um, in 2018, the trend around gender was something we called ungendered. And it was around the third gender option or the fourth or the 85th, right? The idea that gender was no longer a question, it was more like a statement. Um, and the statement people were making uh, described something about themselves that was unique and different, um, that was central to their identity. Uh, and people were starting to realize that. Uh, and this year, uh, muddled masculinity kind of turns the lens to men and says, well, in this world where gender is becoming less important or less of a defining factor and women are taking back this power, what happens to the men? Mm-hmm. And there was all of these fascinating examples. And I know I was doing a, um, a, a recent uh, featured session at South by Southwest, and it happened to be on International Women's Day. And I had this one slide where I just put up a bunch of the headlines of stories that had come out on that day. And one of them was saying, basically the gist of the headline was, it's International Women's Day and we really need men to engage to help women move forward. And the other headline said, it's International Women's Day and men just need to shut up. And it was the kind of the perfect example of what we see out there in terms of conflicting messages for men, right? Because there are a lot of men, I mean, guys probably like you and like me, who we want to do the right thing. We want to be supportive. We want to be um, enlightened. We don't, you know, we're not bad guys. Um, and we want to help, uh, but we sometimes don't know how to help. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what to do. And we get all these conflicting messages and we don't want to screw up. And so the trend really here was not as directive as, you know, fierce femininity was very directive. It's like there's a form of femininity that's really taking over for many people. And it's related to this idea of the Me Too movement and outrage and resist. Whereas muddled masculinity is kind of a question mark. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't exactly know what it means to be a man and people are reevaluating that for themselves. And particularly when you think about younger men, right? And I've got two boys who are older than yours. And as they enter into like becoming teenagers, right? Which they will soon be. this is a big question for them because they're entering this world where it, it's being reevaluated what it means to be a man. And, and to some degree they're entering a world where they see a lot of opportunities 
uh, for women. There's STEM programs to get women involved, and there's all of these different things, and there's a danger that a lot of uh, people are looking at to say, well, we also don't want to leave boys behind mm-hmm. as we do all of these things. So how do we find this balance, which is a really tricky thing to do, because you want to correct it, and you want to fix the injustices that have been out there, of course, mm-hmm. um, but you don't want to um, create an imbalanced world in the opposite direction for the next generation either. Right. Um, and so this is really the question mark that I think a lot of people are struggling with. And that's what this trend meant to uh, describe. Yeah. And uh, it's an interesting one too, because, uh, you know, just to be, uh, we try to be zeitgeisty uh, on this show, but, uh, you know, the Mueller report was inconclusive, uh, or at least it sounds like it was. Uh, and uh, folks just want clarity. They want black and white. And uh, it is interesting when you identify a trend that says, you know, it's complicated. And it does feel like, uh, you know, understanding masculinity, understanding how to, how to raise boys and how to talk about healthy masculinity these days, uh, definitely uh, a complicated thing. Um, and uh, one that I'm sure will continue to, to track. A couple other ones in the media and education um, fields that, uh, that you called out specifically that I, that I wanted to maybe uh, uh, pick up on. And then, and then maybe we could talk a little bit about your guidebooks as we wrap. Um, uh, are fad, fad fatigue and uh, extreme uncluttering. Um, maybe, uh, you know, whichever order makes sense, but, uh, but sort of the idea that uh, folks are tiring of some of the more gimmicky aspects of uh, some of the fads. I know you talked about the distinction between fads and trends. Maybe that's relevant uh, on that front. And then I definitely wanted to get uh, a little bit of time on extreme uncluttering uh, with the, the Mary Condi uh, uh, small home movements, like all those, uh, all those trends, which, uh, you know, which do seem consistent with uh, thematically some of the stuff that we've, uh, we've been describing. I thought it was interesting that they landed in your media and education uh, section. So uh, can you touch, uh, touch a little bit on uh, fad fatigue and extreme uncluttering? Yeah, uh, fad fatigue is just um, the idea that as things are moving so quickly, we see these huge spikes and then disappearance of uh, fads. And we're tired of it. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting relationship that I think people um, tend to ask questions about when it comes to fads versus trends. And, you know, what's a fad, what's a trend? Uh, and usually the way I describe the difference is that a fad typically affects one segment, uh, one industry, one group. Uh, a fad is, you know, all um, 18-year-old girls are, are wearing shirts that have one sleeve, right? And so that, that's a fad right now, but it's only in this one little group. Whereas a trend in the way that I try and describe it in the book and a non-obvious trend in particular, in order to make our list, it has to have examples from multiple industries. It has to be affecting our behavior across more than just one little example. Um, it can't just be a single story. But the fad fatigue trend was about how we're kind of tired of all of these fads coming. And the, the other one, the extreme uncluttering, yeah, you're right. I mean, part of it was related to Marie Kondo and her um, sparking joy movement of like throw out all your stuff unless it sparks joy. Right. Um, but it was also about how that mentality of uncluttering ourselves is also relating to how we consume media. It's also relating to how we spend our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also relating to how we learn. Mm-hmm. And so when you enter into that mentality, or you have people that you're interacting with who have that mentality, it might change what you end up providing them. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, you know, simplifying, removing choice 
you know, rather than sort of inundating with stuff, starting to, to allow for more uh, strategic filtering and uh, sort of clearing, uh, clearing some of the clutter, uh, finding the signal in the noise, uh, that's something that increasingly is important for educators, for teachers, for brands. Uh, and I guess that's a trend that you're seeing or we're all seeing in learners and consumers as well. It's like they don't necessarily want, you know, thousands and thousands of options. They want something sort of clear, straightforward, because uh, um, the amount of uh, information and just noise in our systems. I know you've talked in the past about uh, data pollution and uh, just uh you know, the, the complexity of modern life. Uh, you know, there is a sort of macro theme around simplifying and sort of, uh, sort of clearing out the, the, the less valuable stuff so that we're able to focus on what's important. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's definitely right. And it is a, a macro, um, macro trend. Yeah. So, um, you know, as we're getting close to, uh, to wrapping up, and thanks again, uh, Rohit, for for joining us. Uh, you are also in the process of uh, launching a series of guidebooks uh, that are, are maybe a, a, a new angle on uh, the non-obvious uh, idea. So, uh, so can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, the, the guidebooks are really our um, antidote to the dummies guides, which are um, too long, bloated, and really not, not uh, as useful for people. And so the, the non-obvious guide series, the, the, uniting theme of them is that they're each written as if you were having coffee with an expert. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the tone and what you would get from one of these guides is essentially what you would get if you could sit down for, for an hour uh, with one of the writers of the guides. And they're on a variety of topics. So small business marketing, event planning, employee engagement, emotional intelligence, uh, creating better presentations, being more creative, understanding blockchain. I mean, those are just a few of the titles that we've mm -hmm. got. Um, in the series to start off. And ultimately, I think that, that what we're trying to deliver is um, unlike treating somebody as if they're a dummy or an idiot, we're trying to create smart advice for smart people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people really want. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I did get an opportunity to look at the, uh, read through the the guide to small business uh, you know, and entrepreneurship. And I thought that was a really uh, interesting where you were able to sort of uh, build on the tone and the brand that you've established with uh, the non-obvious company and then be a little more targeted and go a little deeper for uh, folks who are interested in digging into a specific domain. Uh, and it definitely builds on that idea that we sort of kicked off this conversation with where like, you know, uh, in many ways, your company is about education and it is about, uh, you know, really teaching folks how to sort of elevate their thinking and, uh, and sort of adjust their mindset so that, uh, you know, they can kind of build on uh, the, the, the non-obvious uh, thinker in, in each of us. Any concluding thoughts, uh, Rohit, as we begin to wrap up? Uh, I think the only thing is, I mean, as, as uh, educators or, or creators of learning, um, one of the things that I spend a lot of time trying to do is uh, force myself to consume outside information, to uh, meet with or spend time with people who aren't uh, aren't like me. I mean, I just accepted a a speaking um, a speaking gig to go and speak to a, a group made up entirely of rural uh, professionals because I've always lived in the city. Um, and so, part of what I'm hoping to get from all of these experiences is a really diverse point of view about the world. And I 
think that it's very, very difficult to get that if you're totally relying on online media or especially if you're relying on social media because so mm -hmm. much of that is personalized and customized to what some algorithm thinks that you want to hear. Mm -hmm. And in order to really break out of that, we have to be intentional. And so, you know, that if there's a uni uniting theme to my work, um, it is to try and help and encourage and inspire and, and motivate people to have that sort of mindset. Yeah. And, uh, and the, I don't know where this expression comes from and the proof is in the pudding. I, I just jumped to mind, but, uh, but I mean, uh, if you do read through anything that uh, Rohit and the non-obvious uh, team uh, puts together, it's definitely uh, is thought provoking and it encourages you to sort of think outside of your sort of traditional bubble and your traditional biases, which, uh, which is a huge, uh, a huge insight and a, a really valuable thing for us all to think about as we develop educational products, we develop learning products. Uh, Rohit, always a pleasure uh, to have you uh, on the show. Thanks again for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, for those of you who are interested in uh, learning more about Rohit Bargava, look up uh, The Non-Obvious Company. Uh, the 2019 Non-Obvious Trends uh, book is out. Be on the lookout for his guidebooks that are coming, uh, some of which are already out, uh, and uh, maybe more learning products related to those guidebooks uh, also on the horizon. Uh, Rohit Bargava, author and founder of The Non-Obvious Company, uh, great conversation. And for our regular listeners, we'll be back again with uh, our, uh, our regular show on uh, Tuesday morning. And uh, follow us on Twitter, share us with a friend, and uh, try to be as non-obvious as you can. Thanks.